Well, good morning. It is great to be here with you this morning. If you will, take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, we'll be looking at uh, a little bit of this chapter this morning. Not the whole thing, but just excerpts of it. But the title of this morning's message is Finding Comfort. I want to share this with you. Our world today, I appreciate Brother Jeff and the prayer he, he offered to open this morning. Our world around us is, uh, has got a lot of storms in it. Financial storms. Wars. A lot of suffering. Sickness. And you know, even here in America, we oftentimes are shielded from some of this, but I, I, we still see judgment on the land. And we feel that, and there's a lot of concern going on right now as we speak. What we find here in Isaiah chapter 40, for the child of God, there is comfort in the identity of God. The bigness of God, there is comfort. And that is what I want to share with you, the children of God, this morning. Oftentimes we ask for comfort in times of tribulation. We see God at work in our lives and, and, and we work hard every day to provide our self-comfort in retirement one day. We work hard for that. But comfort comes not just in finances or retirement. It runs deeper into spiritual comfort. And it, it is rooted in our own perception of God, how powerful we see God in our life. And this message will dig into that application as you bear with me. So in chapter 40 of Isaiah, I want to read quickly verses 27 through 31. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 through 30, 31. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed away, uh, passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching in his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. May we go to the Lord once more. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for this day that we can come together to, to hear your word, Father, and to apply it to our lives. Now, Father, I just pray for comfort for this house of believers, Father, and all those who are, are listening. I just pray that you'll watch over us. Forgive us of our many sins. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I feel certain that everyone here views God as a big God, a supreme God, a powerful, omniscient one. I'm sure everyone here does. And you may even call yourself a big Godder. You view God as big. But there are people in this world that we live in, even in churches, who see God as a little God. They try to put Him in a box and limit Him. And I call these people little Godders. You see, the way that you see your God really determines much of the shape of your life. 
I want you to think about it. A big Godder is someone whose problems will seem smaller. The big Godder is someone who prays large prayers and, and dreams big and reaches high. And a big Godder has faith that stands firm in the face of life's challenges. And they have a hope that lasts. You know, how we view our God and how we understand our God and how we un- uh, comprehend God really does determine the breadth and depth and height of our faith. It's important for us to view God correctly. And our view of God becomes the window through which we view life itself. If your view of God is small, then your life tends to be constricted, full of anxiety and stress. However, if your view of God is big, then your life typically is large. You don't get worried about all the small things that are out of your control. It's our view of God that helps us form our belief, measures our hope, and provides comfort in times of tribulation. You and I cannot rise above the depth of our knowledge of God's character. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, said from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. The size of our God helps to shape our faith. And with that in mind, I want to return back to our book here in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 presents us a picture of a big God. He is a God who is incomparable. You can't compare Him to anything. There is no one like our God. He is a big God. I want you to look quickly at verse 18 of Isaiah 40. 18 says, To whom... Will they like, then will he, ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? Look at verse 25. To whom will be, liken, will be liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Both of these scriptures assure us that our God is incomparable. There is nothing to be compared to him. And so whatever you are dealing with in this world, whatever politics happen in this world, what famine takes place, none of it is bigger than our God. He still sits on the throne and He is in control. This is why Isaiah tells his people to behold their God in verse 9 of this chapter. And this is what Isaiah is doing here. He is presenting a picture of a big God to the people of God. But you know what? This is what they needed at the time. The nation of Israel here and the prophet Isaiah is teaching this nation of Israel that there is a judgment coming. They have an enemy at the door. The nation of Assyria is about to uh, enter into a war with them. Soon after that, they will be exiled into the nation of Babylon. Their beautiful city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. Isaiah is telling his people this in the previous chapters. He is warning of this coming judgment. But alongside this message of judgment, we come to chapter 40, and it is a message of comfort. The nation of Israel's hearts are broken when they hear of this judgment. 
But Isaiah 40 comes in and chapter 40 is where the book pivots from judgment to comfort. And Isaiah will share a promise of Israel's deliverance. And it is of reassurance. But it is rooted in their knowledge and their, their view of their God. Now Isaiah, is, his message is that you, you can wait on this big God. It gives you patience to wait. He will renew your strength. He reminds us you can mount up on wings of eagles. He will give you strength to run. And He will give you strength to walk and not be faint. Now with that being said, by way of introduction, I want to take a little bit closer look at chapter 40. I want to share with you three points this morning. First is the commission. We will find that in the very beginning of chapter 40. Secondly, it is the contemplation of God. And thirdly, it is the consolation or the application here for us. So first, let's look early in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 40. This is the commission, and it's quite simple. Look at verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now just a bit of historic perspective here on the day Isaiah is saying this, Judah is dealing with a threat from a neighboring nation to the north, specifically Assyria. Now God has already told Isaiah that there is a captivity coming into Babylon. The, the, there will be a decimation of the city of Jerusalem and a scattering of the people of the tribe of Judah. In the middle of this message of the coming judgment, we find here in chapter 40 this message of comfort. And God's commission, God commissions Isaiah to speak comfort to the people of God. His message is an emphatic call to heal the wounds and bind up their broken heart. And they are being called to love the people of God and to care for the people of God just like God cares for them. And they are to comfort the people of God. Now that word comfort there in Hebrew, the word comfort means to cause to breathe, or to come back, or to breathe strongly. In a sense, their message is to revive the hopes of God's people. And we need that in times like these. We have hope. And that is what I want to share with you today. For Israel, given the threat of the Assyrians in the present and the coming threat of the Babylonians, they needed their hopes revived. And this particular chapter of the Old Testament is a message of hope. And I pray that you'll see that there are blessings in this today. And I pray that it will help to revive us. Now when we read and study portions of Scripture like this, we find that oftentimes we are broken hearted. And we are disturbed within us about the things that are happening in our world. But we realize that our great God provides us comfort within those tribulations. Life is full of times where our hearts will break. Difficulties abound. But take solace in the fact that peace and comfort comes through God during those times. The broken heart needs a medicine. And according to Isaiah chapter 40, that medicine is a big view of God. 
And that's where we're going to go with the second point, the contemplation. The contemplation. I want you to take a minute and I want you to picture God as best as you can. How big is He? What does He create? What does He control? And Isaiah is sharing this message of comfort to the people of God. And he wants you to focus on the person of God. There is comfort in knowing that. Look at verse 9 with me. O Zion, thou bringest good tidings. Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Sayeth unto, say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. You see, this is the antidote right here. What does he say? Get up in the mountains and do what? Start worshiping. Start worshiping your God. This is a big view of God. In the toughest of times in life, one of the biggest and best medicines that we have is to come to church and worship God. There's comfort in that. John Piper is quoted as saying, People are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis in their troubled life. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. But here in Isaiah 40, Isaiah knows the cure. The people here are presented with a big, grand picture of God to comfort their broken hearts. And what Isaiah does here, and I'm sure other prophets of God did, is they want to exhaust every possible comparison they can to this uncomparable God. This God who has sworn to love and protect and sustain this nation. So what I want to do is take the next few minutes, and I want to look closely at just a few verses from from verse 12 to 26, not all of it, but just excerpts. And I want to glean some truths here that Isaiah shares with us about how big God really is. And Isaiah compares this incomparable God to as many things as he can think of. The first thing he does is he compares the incomparable nature of God with certain places that we know. Look at verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out the heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in balance? Now Isaiah right here is reminding the people that God is the creator of everything. Isaiah here is essentially restating in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He wanted the people to grasp the immeasurable nature of God in creation. The awe-inspiring acknowledgement of God when we contemplate the creation of all the, of the heavens and the earth. Now I got the opportunity a few years back to go with my wife's family, my in-laws, on a trip to Hawaii. We got the chance to go with them and we flew into Maui. And it was an amazing place to see the landscape. There was a giant volcano and mountains, and then a beautiful ocean all on one island. And it was astonishing for just a, a backwoods flatlander like myself just to see that this creation that, that is on earth. You know, after a day of sightseeing and, and driving around the island, we decided that we would rent a few flippers and a, and a snorkel and that we would go underwater and see what's under there. 
Well, there was an old lava flow there at our resort that we stayed at that extended into the water, and it was called Black Rock. And this old lava flow extended out into the Pacific Ocean, and as I got under the water and I began to swim along beside this old lava flow, let me tell you something. The things that I saw under that water were truly awe-inspiring. It was the best aquarium exhibit I'd ever seen, but it's out in the wild. Fish and coral of every color of the rainbow. Some were even glowing. Pictures, National Geographic, you name it, they can't do it justice. Now I'll tell you this, not just to say that I've been to Hawaii, but I, I want to tell you this, that we can't even fathom the greatness of God and His creation. We can't even fathom it. As amazing as God's creation is on land and what we see is visible, it's even more amazing under the surface and things that are invisible to us. This is how big God is. God didn't just create the land. He created things that we've never seen under the ocean. You know, this speaks of the omnipotence of God. God is omnipotent. Just because we don't see something or comprehend it at the time, this doesn't mean God doesn't create it and He uses it for His glory. He does. And this is exactly what Isaiah is reminding of people here. His majesty is incomparable to anything in creation. God simply spoke all of this into existence. The hollow of His hand will hold all of the water in the earth, verse 12 says. The span of his hand, which is the length of the thumb to the pinky finger, it's about eight inches on most people, it would fit the entirety of the heaven between his outstretched fingers. Again, Isaiah is trying to help us comprehend the greatness and the bigness of God. Creation dwarfs us, doesn't it? But it doesn't dwarf God. Isaiah doesn't stop there. I want you to look quickly at verse 13 and 14. <clears throat> Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being His counselor, hath taught Him? With whom took He counsel, and who instructed Him, and taught Him in the path of judgment, and taught Him knowledge, and showed to Him the way of understanding? We've moved from God's majesty through creation to now reading about the infinite knowledge of God. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? Unlike us, God's knowledge doesn't grow. It doesn't expand. It just, His knowledge, it just is. This is the omniscience of God. He is all-knowing. God doesn't need a consulting firm. He's so great that all the knowledge of, and creation are, are just on display, or a display of His glory. His infinite, uh, his understanding of his knowledge, it, it is infinite. It has no beginning. It has no end. Look at verse twenty-eight of Isaiah forty. Notice the end of that. It says, "There is no searching of his understanding." We can't even get, approach his understanding of the things God knows. Albert Einstein. He's quoted as saying, "I feel like a man chained." If I could only free myself from my intellectual smallness. As smart as Albert Einstein was, and as he stretched his mind around the mysteries of life, he just couldn't stretch his mind that far. 
There's limitations to us. We have a finite mind. But God doesn't. He is much bigger than we. So we see that our God is incomparable to places. Our God is incomparable to philosophers and knowledge. Now let's look that our God is incomparable to people. Look at verse 15. Behold the nations. Now, there are roughly 7 billion people on this earth right now. This is what's referenced here. Behold the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. Look at verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. Now, think of this. How would that message fall on the conscience of the nation of Israel who were heartbroken and, and, and longing for restoration? How did this message fall upon their ears and their hearts? Remember the nation of Israel had just been told that they will be put into bondage in, in Babylon. They will be attacked from the north by Assyria. The people of God are going to be ground up by the gears of geopolitics. How would this message fall upon their heart? The people are heartbroken. And then Isaiah, who's been commissioned by God to comfort his people, comes and he lays this out and said, This is your God. He is almighty. He is everywhere. He is all-powerful. This is your God. And your God is the one who considers the nations as a drop of water in a bucket. The entire population of the earth are mere grasshoppers. The message here is that if you take all the enemies of God and put all their resources and militaries and kings and warriors together, they're not even going to register on a scale with the glory of God. Now that's putting things into perspective, isn't it? Now I wonder how that sounded to God's people at the time. You see, Isaiah is making this comparison to some things that we can observe here on our human experience. But to our God, there is no comparison. He even goes into a discussion here in, the, in verses about sacrifices and worship. In verses 19 and 20, he likens these idolaters who make graven images to worship. They are not even able to create an image that will not rot. You know, all throughout human history, humans have worshipped in one way, shape, or form. We have an inherent need to worship. It's part of our DNA. God created us this way. As, human, you, as a human, you will worship something. Even those who say they do not, they do. It's not a question if you will worship. It's a question of who and what you will worship. Or are you going to worship the God that sits in the circle of the earth and made you for himself? Or are you going to worship something that is made of hands? That is what Isaiah is asking. Worship some image of him that is somehow limited in, in our own imagination of him. You know, idolatry is still a problem in the world today. We need to be careful not to worship the creation rather than the creator. Beware of idols. They don't bring comfort. Idols bring destruction. 
But I want to review with you really quick and make a quick modern application for us. Remember, Israel is entering into a season of judgment. They are being reassured and comforted that this judgment will end one day. And keeping the faith is important. Isaiah is reminding people that all of these nations, they are enemies of God. And they will have their moment to be dealt with swiftly and severely. God will simply blow on these enemies and they'll become just a footnote in history. The leaders will live beneath a a moss-covered headstone, as he says. Now, we're in a similar season now. Look at, on a world scale, we've been in a difficult time with a pandemic. The world is seeing martyrs take uh, people killed for their faith. On a most recent piece of statistic, I've, I've read that 11 people a day are killed for their faith in Christ, even today. We're becoming enthralled again on what appears to be another cold war. We have enemies abroad. We have enemies at home. But God, however, still sits on the throne. He is our sovereign king. He determines the rising and falling of great men. He determines the boundaries of empires and their places in history. When God is finished with them, He'll blow on them and make them all blow away like chaff at the appropriate moment. You just keep that in mind when you get a little fluttered or frustrated at the world around you. Earthly kings, presidents, and potentates, they often seem to wield much power. And many wield it quite wickedly. But we know there's only one who holds real power. It is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, there's great comfort for the child of God in knowing that. Now lastly, as we close today, the consolation. We've been building up to this in the message all morning. In light of the bigness of God, and yet this intimate knowledge and care for His creation, Isaiah asks us in verse 27 and 28, how can the exiled people of God think that either God is ignorant or indifferent or impotent regarding their condition? Given the everlasting nature of God, Given the providential care of God and the depths of God, God is and will always be a source of strength for His people. That's the application. Now look quickly at verse 29. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might He increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah is speaking to the child of God here. This message purpose this morning is an encouragement. To renew your strength. To recognize how big God is in our world. And that He is for you. Notice in verse 31 the change of gears here. This is a personal application for you and I. The entire chapter talks about comparing God to, how, to the things around us and how big He really is and mighty He is. But verse 31 tells us that what is given to those who wait upon Him. You have strength to mount up and soar with wings as eagles. The strength to run, 
and the strength to walk. This is telling us here that we'll have strength for all experiences in life. All of them. There are different seasons in life. You do realize that. There are different seasons. You know where it says here that there are times when God gives you wings and, or, or gives you the strength to soar like wings of eagles. These are the good times. These are the times where you accomplish and you achieve what you set out to achieve. This is when you're on the top of your game. And God is underwriting that with His grace and blessing and His power for you to rise above your challenges. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? When God allows you to soar like wings of eagles. It's a wonderful time. But we know it's not always like that. Sometimes you just need strength to run. Do you find yourself sometimes just chasing life down? Do you feel swamped at times? You're just trying to stay ahead of the next crisis, it seems. Well, there's strength for that. He'll give you strength to run, it says. And lastly, He'll give you strength to walk. Sometimes life just seems so pedestrian, doesn't it? Warren Wearsby, one of, another one of my favorite authors, tells of a friend who used to come up with all these little quips and sayings. One day his friend told him, you know, the trouble with life is, it's just so daily. You've got to take care of those kids, don't you, every day. You've got to wash those dishes every day. You've got to cook those meals every day. You've got to get up and go to work every day. You've got to fight the good fight of faith every day. It's a grind. But that's why he's telling us he gives us strength for the walk. It's the everyday things he gives us strength for. The daily grind of life needs strength too. And it's nice to know, it's nice to have that when you can soar. It's good to have strength when you run. But honestly, most of the time we're just walking in life, aren't we? Martin Luther King Jr. once said, if you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. Whatever you do, just keep moving. Maybe that's what all you can muster right now. Just keep moving. There's strength for that, for those that wait upon the Lord, it says. Just keep moving. When those times come in life where they're overwhelming, tragedy strikes, remember God is incomparable. Remember how big He is. He is on the throne. And as Romans 8.31 tells us, if God be for us, who can be against us? Take strength from that. The God who created the universe is for us. May God add His blessing to the reading and the studying of His Word.